back. The rest of you, grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Is where we're going to be this morning. Hey, if you did not get a chance to fill out a commitment card, you just totally forgot, or you got, you know, for some reason you got bashful last second, um, we'll be taking uh, commitment cards again next week, not in quite as a public a manner, but probably as you're leaving next Sunday morning, uh, we'll have those baskets out in the back again available for you uh, to turn in, and so we'd encourage you to do that, um, and yeah, thank you all so much for participating in that. We hope that that was a spiritual exercise. It, it, we, we hope it's, it increases giving and evangelism and service, but we, we also are encouraged and, and want to just shepherd your souls, that you ought to be thinking about these things, even if there was parts of that thing you didn't fill out. Maybe you only made two commitments, and that's okay. We just want you intentionally to be thinking about these things and how God is calling you to be a part of his mission in this world. All righty. Matthew chapter 28. Well, if you've been around church, you kind of know somewhat where we're going this morning. If you haven't, that is okay. It should become apparent fairly soon. What is your mission in life? Are you on mission? Well, if I were to give you a question, what is your mission? What's your one-line answer as to what your mission is in life? What are you about? Really, actually, what I should ask is not so much, do you have a mission? Because everybody has a mission. Everybody wakes up every morning, and they get dressed, and they go about their day because they, have a, they perceive a particular purpose in their life. And they not, may not like that purpose, but they get up and they pursue that mission, no matter how big or small significant or insignificant. And so maybe the question isn't so much, do you have a mission, but do you have a worthy mission? Some people in this world have some wonderfully significant mission. They are part of great and grand endeavors. George Patton was a man on mission. You know George Patton, maybe from the movie Patton, where he gets up there and he's got those like horse pants on. And he yells at his troops. He took the third army and aimed them like an arrow at Berlin. He wanted to get across the Rhine and crush the Nazi menace as fast as he humanly could. He was determined that nothing would stop them. He was quoted as saying this, We will fire every bullet. We will use every drop of gas. And then we will get out and we will walk to get to Berlin. He also said this. He was very fond of saying it on numerous occasions. He said, either lead, follow, or get out of the way. He was a man on mission. He moved a massive army 100 miles in 48 hours in what is known as one of the most brilliant military maneuvers to stem the breach, the Battle of the Bulge, because he was a man on mission. He had a significant mission. Some people have trivial missions, though. There There are various places all over our country that are now regional events where grown men will get together and grown women as well, and they will dress up as Star Wars figures, and they will get together for whole weeks at a time to celebrate Star Wars. Some grown men have whole rooms dedicated to Star Wars because they're, they have to live in a fantasy world. Speaking of fantasy worlds, even more men, and perhaps just as many women, oddly enough, 
take a part in this thing called fantasy football, where men and women spend copious amounts of time every year, each week, day in and day out, stealing hours from their businesses, trying to come up with that week's group of players that they're going to play. The perpetual longing. Some of you have uh, your mission is just to remain young. And that mission is to drive you to cut and snip and add things here and there, to go under the knife just to keep from looking a little bit older for a few more days. That's the mission for some people. Re- heard recently about a couple guys. <laughs> now, this is a good mission. This is, some of you are going to really love this. They couldn't stand seeing typos on public signage. And so they, they, like the possessive apostrophes in the wrong places and, and misspelled words and, and these kind of, and, and hyphens in the wrong places. And so they took it upon themselves, this is a great mission, was to go around and fix all the public signage around America. And so they traveled all over the country to fix the public signage. Their motto was this, changing the world one typo at a time. Yeah. Hey, you can have a trivial mission, but you can you go even worse. You can have a destructive mission. Hugh Hefner has a destructive mission, and he's been rather, he's been rather uh, good at it, changing the sexual mores of our culture. ISIS has a mission. Most people are pretty, they have a mission. They're dedicated to that mission, but it's a pretty destructive one. Planned Parenthood has a mission. They can claim it's to be any number of things, but it's clear, clear what their mission is. And you know what? To go from that... But I also want to try to bring this out. Helicopter parents have a mission as well. And it is destructive as well. What is the primary North American mission? What is the primary mission of the the vast majority of people sitting in pews across America this morning? I think here's what it is. It is personal peace or personal happiness and affluence. That is the American God. If people come to me and they say something like this perhaps. Oh, I'm going to take a job somewhere else. I'm going to move my family across the country and I go, wait a second, I thought you, you loved your job here and you, you live in a great neighborhood and you, you love the church you're a part of. They say, yeah, but I think, I think moving's gonna make us really happy. We don't know where we're gonna go to church, but we think moving to this new place will make us happy. Some people say, I'm leaving my spouse. You ask the question, have they abused you? Have they cheated on you? No, we're just, we would just be happy you're not together. The great American idol Personal peace, personal happiness, and affluence. So what would Jesus have us do? What's the mission of Jesus? You see, many of you would like this. You would like Jesus to be on your mission. Yeah, and that's often how we view Christianity. Jesus, I have a mission, and I have a purpose with my life, and, and could you get on board with my mission? I love the great, the great passage. I wrote this a couple months ago in my devotions in Joshua. Many Christians around around this time and age when we have political events would, would be good to remember this. But Joshua, Joshua, he's standing there and he sees the, the, the angel of God as they're entering into the Canaan land and he goes, are you for us or against us? And the angel goes, wrong question. The question is, are you with me? Are you with me? You see, The thing is not to ask God to bless your mission. The thing is to find what God is blessing and the mission that God is on and join him in that. And so what's the mission God has for us? Matthew 28, Matthew 28, what is known as the Great Commission. Verse 16 is where I'll pick up and read through verse 20. Follow along your Bibles. This is also on the screen as well if you don't have one with you. 
Hear the word of the Lord. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This ends the reading of God's holy inerrance infallible word may the grass wither and the flower fade may the word of God stand forever what's our mission King's Chapel what's our mission again what's our mission the mission is to make disciples in case you missed it there go therefore and make disciples go therefore and make disciples this is the call of the Christian we're going to do an ordination service tonight Ben's going to be set aside for the work of ordination. Heard about another ordination service by, by another pastor in which he was sitting and he and his wife were called up at the end of the ordination service and, and various men and leaders in this church were coming alongside and they were shaking their hands and they were congratulating them and they were also praying for them. And, and so they were coming along and one man who had been the mentor to this pastor came up and this, this man was rather large as he came up towards the seat that this young new pastor was sitting in and he came up and he grabbed the young pastor by the shirt, and he pulled him up. He was an ex-football player, and he pulled him up so he could look at him eye to eye. And here's what he said. Don't ever let the Great Commission be something you just read about. And then he let him go, and he hobbled off. And then he stopped, and he turned around, and he pointed at his wife, and he said, and don't you dare leave her behind either. The mission, don't don't just let the Great Commission be something you read about. Brothers and sisters, that is the call, what I want us to to call you to this morning, that us as a church, that we would not be a church that simply reads about the Great Commission. And we wouldn't simply just hear about other people doing wonderful things for God and for his kingdom and for his glory, but that we would be engaged as a church and as individuals in this great mission that God is on. The Great Commission, brothers and sisters, is an imperative It is not an option. Go is an imperative. Go, therefore, and make disciples. The Bible is very clear that one cannot be a Christian, cannot be a follower of Jesus, and not be a disciple. And it's also clear that you are not a disciple unless you are also caught up in the family business, the business of Jesus, which is to see other people be made into disciples. That is the mission that we are to be on with our lives. We must realize that within the Great Commission is the call to teach people to not just obey all the other commandments of God's word, but to command, to command them and teach them to obey this commandment as well. Go therefore and make disciples is a commandment just along with what there with all the other big ten commandments like don't commit adultery and rest on the Sabbath day and don't covet. Make disciples. And we're to teach people to make disciples who make disciples. If we don't see every member as disciples who are called to make disciples, then guess what? The church, the church will become stagnant and it will become powerless. If we view as a church, King's Chapel, and I think we've given evidence that it's not this way here, but to remind us not to think this way, if we view churches this way, where there's a few hired guns and hired professionals and discipleship is for the uber-spiritual here, and the guys like me who get paid, then we will die on the vine. 
We are called the priesthood of believers. Every member, a priest, every member, a disciple maker. That we would not, we want to be a church that is not simply a people that has a few moms and dads and a bunch of spiritual orphans who are desperately needing care. Now we want to care for people and we want to disciple them. But we want to disciple them so they can turn around and care for other people. And that's how you turn a church into a family and not simply an orphanage. It's by making disciples who make disciples. So I'm going to draw some things out for you this morning to remind us. Because some of my concern is this. Is in the midst of some of our new initiatives, four years ago I came to you and I came very specifically and I said, listen, this is the strategic vision of this church. And this is the heart of this church is to make disciples. Now, we have certain ways in which we want to go about doing that, and I want to remind you of some of them this morning. But even as we, I want to make sure as a church, as we grow bigger, and as we are more involved in more things, and more acts of service, and more activities in our community, that we don't get lost in the weeds, but that we keep the main thing, the main thing. But as Stephen Covey said in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that the main thing is keeping the main thing, the main thing. So that's what I want to remind us of this morning. I want you to see three components from this passage, three components of disciple-making. And don't you love alliteration? I'll give it to you in three Cs. That's annoying, isn't it? The first is this. The con- yeah, it is annoying, isn't it, Nathan? Nathan would prefer me to be more ironic. Uh, the first is this, is the context of disciple-making. The context of disciple-making is of incredible importance and what is the context? The context of disciple-making is the community of God's people. Community of God's people. You say, where is that here? Here's the thing. Jesus said, in an odd place, it says, I am with you always. Now, here's how we normally, as being Americans and being a radical individualist, when we hear Jesus say that, when he says, and I will be with you always, here's what we hear him say. That when I go to the grocery store, Jesus is with me. And that when I'm walking on the green belt, Jesus is with me. And even when I go to Alabama and cross the border, Jesus, even there, Jesus is with me. Now listen, that is true. Jesus is with you even when you go to all those places. But that's not actually the point of this text. See, when it says, I am with you always, you have to understand what the you is there. You see, speaking of Alabama, it's a plural you. We don't have a plural you, at least in not, you know, in normal grammatical fashion. We have to look to Alabama and Georgia and the South, don't we? To y'all. That's what it is. What he is saying is he is not speaking to an individual you. He is speaking to a plural you, to his disciples and to his church. You see, when God calls us and says, I'm going to be with you, what he means is this, is I'm going to be in the community with you. The means by which, the primary means by which God has called you to commune with him and come to know him is in the community of God's people. And therefore, the context in which your discipleship and the discipleship of any of your children, yes, your children, which means church is more important than their soccer team. That church is more important than their school because this is the context in which they are discipled best, the community of God's people. And it's the community of God's people in which you get to know Jesus. You see, Jesus, in the the context of this passage in Matthew 28, I'll refer to this a couple times, is Jesus in Matthew 28, or Matthew is writing about the resurrection. And Jesus in the Great Commission is is articulating the invocations of the resurrection in his Great Commission. And he is saying, listen, I have risen from the dead. We don't have a dead Jesus. We have a personal living Jesus. 
And therefore, we get to know him in relationship both with him and with other people. God has designed us from the very beginning of creation to engage with him in relationship. The one thing that God said when he made creation that wasn't good was when he looked at Adam, and Adam didn't have someone with whom to enjoy God with. To enjoy God with. You ever ridden on a roller coaster all by yourself? You weren't designed to ride on a roller coaster all by yourself. Because when you scream, there's no one there to hear it. And it takes all the joy out of it. And listen, that's the same way with worship. And that's the same way with understanding and knowing God's. You were designed to know God and community. So that's the first. The context of disciple making is the community of God's people. The second is this. The second component is the content of disciple making. The content of disciple making is to teach them to obey. So we're to make disciples who are obedient to Jesus in all that God commands us to do. The question is, what are we teaching you to obey? That's a lot of stuff, isn't it? You ever, you ever seen a Bible? Somebody hold up a Bible. Listen, it's like the smallest print ever, and it's still like a 1,000 pages. So how are we supposed to teach people, and how am I supposed to, in a sermon, tell you like this, about this component, about all the laws and all the commands of God? Well, fortunately, God has given us the good pleasure and the good privilege of summarizing the whole law. And how did he say it? What's the summary of all the laws and commands of God's? Matthew, Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31, Jesus said this, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Obedience involves doing stuff and not doing other stuff. And that's well and good, but from, the, from what we see here, the summary of the law is that obedience means more than that. It involves all of your being. And here's how we've described this here philosophically in our disciple-making process, is we want people to come to know God with their head, their heart, and their hands. That all three components have to be engaged, head, heart, hands, in order to make a disciple of Jesus who is being obedient. Right? Because it says there in the, great, in, the, in the greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. That's every part of your faculties with which you're supposed to love God. So let me just walk through this very briefly. That's what we want to do in the contents. We want people's hearts to be inflamed. That's part of obeying God. And what do I mean by that? I mean this is their affections. They have affection and love for the Lord's. Right? It doesn't simply just say, follow God's rules. It says what in the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your gods with your heart and your soul. It seems sometimes it's difficult to understand what the scriptures are talking about when it regards to our heart, but I'm going to simply refer to it as our affections this morning. Our affections. Some people boil it down too much to just emotions. It's more than just the emotions. It is the affections. It is the longings and the deepest desires of your heart. It needs to be Jesus. And so as a church, if you're discipling somebody, and as we are involved in in one another's lives and engaging one another, we need to be involved in the process of seeking to inflame our hearts with affections, affections for Jesus. You want to see a great example of someone who had affection for Jesus? Look at Luke chapter 7. There's a story of a, where Jesus is having dinner with some Pharisees, and he's sitting there, and it's kind of, they're out in a kind of a, a public place. They're kind of at a view of the street, and so even strangers could kind of, kind of wander in and see what they're doing at this dinner. And as Jesus is sitting there reclining at the table, there is a woman, it says, a woman of the night essentially comes up and begins to wash Jesus' feet. 
In other words, a woman tonight, she's a prostitute. It's a euphemism that begins to be used there by calling her a sinner. And she comes to Jesus and she stoops at his feet and she takes a jar of extremely perf- uh, uh, expensive perfume and she breaks that jar over Jesus' feet and pours it on him. Now you have to understand the importance and implication of such a jar. If this is your line of work as a woman of the night, and if you live in a society in which there are no showers, what do you need? What do you need? You need something to mask the stench. This is her livelihood that she is laying at his feet. She's breaking her livelihood upon Jesus' feet as an act of worship. And then in her tears, she is moved by Jesus' love for her so much so that she weeps and begins to wash his feet with her hair and her tears. This is a woman who has come to worship Jesus. She is filled with affection. Her worship of Jesus is not dour and sour It may be contemplative, but it moves beyond that into something utterly shocking. She lets down her hair. This is a woman who has affection for Jesus. This is an act. Did you know that back then, for a woman to let her down her hair in the the presence of a man, that was tantamount to soliciting physical intimacy. That is how intimate, how much affection that she is coming to Jesus in this way to let down her hair. Her worship of Jesus is scandalous. It is scandalously reverence. Is that what your worship is like? You have affection for Jesus in this way. And let me, let me understand this for your disciple-making process. For many of you, for many of you, you want to grow as a, as a, a disciple. You want to grow in obedience to Jesus. But you have various idols and various sins in your life that are causing you to stumble that are holding you back. There was a great word from an old Scottish Puritan named Thomas Chalmers as the means by which we root out heart idols, the things that are keeping us from being obedient to God and his commands. And he said this, that what we need to root out heart idols is the expulsive power of a new affection. Now, what does he mean by that? Idols are things that we desire. And what he is saying is if you want to change, if you want your heart changed, is you need, to want, you need to love something more than you love those idols. You need to have something that you desire more deeply than you desire the things of this world. And so the first thing in, in discipleship and the heart that we must pursue is a heart inflamed with affection for Jesus. So hearts inflamed. We also want to, the content of our discipleship should be to seek to transform minds. Minds transformed. Romans 12, 2 says what? Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. The gospel causes us to think differently. In Acts 2, 42 through 47, we looked at this right before Christmas. What, where, what did they devote themselves to in Acts 2? A study of God's words. Listen to this. This is the, some of the most spirit-filled, worshipful people and is, they just say, well, you know what we just need? We just need to get to the holy fields and come into worship and just have an hour and a half long singing session. No, these are people who are not intellectual. They long to hear from God in his words. To hear from God in his words. It's interesting, three or four years ago when I first came to our church and, and, and sought to say, if we, were weak, if we were strong in one area, this is the area where I think we would have said we were strong in. And our constant need to constantly be going back and forth and making sure that we're we're keeping things in balance and making sure that we're doing all things well. I think this is the area where we're weakest right now. And we are a church that has great affections for God. And as you can see, I think we're a church that's getting busy for God. And that's wonderful. But I also want us to be a church that's studying deeply and having our minds transformed as well. 
In a couple of months, we're going to be pushing to you to take part of our, in our development classes this summer when we have the specific uh, use of those classes to equip you for good works, but also to train you to think rightly. You need to think rightly. See, there is a thing called a Christian worldview, a gospel worldview. And therefore, you've got to open your Bible and you've got to know it. And therefore, part of our disciple-making process and the content of it has to be shaping our minds. Let us be a people who are not anti-intellectual and anti-theological. You need to get into God's word. You need to study some. Third, third, in the teaching of Scripture, the application of the gospel, we cannot merely simply talk about it, and we cannot simply feel the gospel, have affection for it, but these things will inevitably and must become applied into our lives, which is hands employed. Hands employed. So hearts engaged, hearts inflamed, minds transformed, hands employed. It says this in Romans 12, 1, we present our bodies as living sacrifices. We give our life, and we see the gospel enacted in our lives and see how Jesus has sacrificed all things. Their only right application and right response is to follow Jesus and to do what he did and get our hands and feet dirty in serving and caring for one another and for the world. John 13, 14, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. when We talked about serving one another, and he says this. Jesus stoops down, he washes his disciples' feet, and then he says this. Now that I... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. Hands employed. Missional living is not simply the application of, for, application of our growth. It should be a part of our growth. Part of our growth. You see, if, if, our, if, our, if our motto is, listen, we just create, try to create a safe bubble where we don't have to hang out with too many sinners and our kids don't have to hang out with too many sinners, guess what? It's going to stunt your sanctification growth. It's going to stunt the means of the disciple-making process in you because guess what? You won't be in hard situations. You won't be in hard situations. You won't learn how to do peacemaking and how to forgive and how to begin to apply the gospel in some of the most broken places in this world. If you keep your life too clean and too pretty and too pietistic, listen, you're not going to grow. It's going to stunt your growth. This has got to be involved in your life. And listen, we want all three of these components. I've used two illustrations to kind of describe this in the past. One is it's like a three-legged stool. All three have to be, have to be engaged in. Hearts inflamed, mind transformed, hands employed. All three components, right? To follow the greatest commandments. To love your Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. A three-legged stool, if you take one of them away, what happens? It falls over. Or if you're short on one, what happens? You get wobbly. You're sitting crooked. And as a church, frankly, as a leadership, what we're going to constantly be doing is, okay, are we sitting crooked? How do we need to adjust? Are we as a church, are, we, are people engaging with their affections in Jesus? Are our people growing in their knowledge of God and his word? Are our people engaged with their hands employed in the mission and the work of God's people? So we need to be involved in all of these. Let's see, you want a negative illustration. Look at a weightlifter. I recently started going back to the gym. You know, it is February, right? January, February, that's when I'm supposed to go back to the gym. I started in November, though. So, but I went back to the gym, and I was reminded once again of those guys in the gym who love to work out their upper body. And they are just jacked. Huge chest and massive shoulders and these huge biceps, and they just work out their abs all the time. And they have tiny little legs. (laughs) Such that a... A strong gust will blow them over. I'm like, Humpty Dumpty, I can't get up. 
Yeah, this is what happens when you have, when you have a maladjusted discipleship process. When the content of your disciple making only focuses on one of these. Or two of these. It's got to be all three. So, lastly, so we've seen, we've seen the context is, is community. We've seen the content is head, heart, hands, the greatest commandments, obey God. And finally, the cornerstone of disciple making. The cornerstone of, final, of disciple making is what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the fount from which the community, the commands, the power, the motivation, all flows. In Acts 1, in Acts 1, this sermon is nice because we're going back to finally our exposition of Acts again next week. So this helps us transition back to the, the theme of Acts. In Acts 1, Acts begins with a parallel account of what goes on in the Great Commission. Where Jesus is about to ascend and he calls his disciples and they're wondering if Jesus is going to set up and establish a kingdom. And Jesus goes, no, that's not what we're talking about here. I want you to go and be my witnesses. It is, it is parallel that their commission in Acts 1 is to go be my witnesses. The cornerstone of disciple making and the cornerstone of the great commission is to be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the preeminent and singular mission of Christ's church. It is what undergirds our disciple-making processes to be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus. And once again, I want to turn back to the context of Matthew 28. If you look at the, very, the early part of Matthew 28, what is it about? It's about the resurrection. It's interesting, we almost always, and even I read just the first last four verses, five verses of Matthew 28, we take the Great Commission and we splice it off and we deal with it separately from the text on resurrection. But they actually can't be. They're entirely related because Jesus is saying, I've risen and I'm about to ascend to be king. And that's entirely related to now what I'm calling you to do, which is to go be my eyewitnesses that you've seen that I've risen from the dead, that I've defeated sin and I've defeated death. And now I want you to go tell the world what you've seen. In other words, our disciple making, the cornerstone of our disciple making must be, we must point people to the fact, all the things that God has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. If our disciple-making is more about giving people good advice or it's more about telling them a list of do's and don'ts, we will have failed our people and we will not make disciples. We will make wonderful little moralists and legalists. It must begin and end here with the gospel. You see, the gospel events is it's good news. You don't make the news. You respond to the news. And the news is this, and what the, what the disciples were to tell the world was about, about was that Jesus came and lived a righteous life that you and I could not live. He died the death, the atoning death, for the, to, to take on the wrath of God that we should have had. And then he rose from the dead, defeated death, and we saw him, and then we saw him to our sin to sit on the throne of God. That's the news. And so what we are doing as we are making disciples is we are communicating to them this. That Jesus lived the life you should have lived, and he died the death that you should have died. And we're telling him to him over and over and over again. The good news is not that Jesus did all that was, is that Jesus did all that was what was and is and will be necessary for salvation. That there's not a shred of your salvation that you have to accomplish. He did it all for you. Now, isn't that nice? Hey, enter a disciple-making process where it's guaranteed he has done everything for your salvation. Don't enter the disciple-making process to make yourself right with God. Enter the disciple-making process because you already have been made right with God. The gospel goes on to have implications, right? There's redemption accomplished in what Jesus did for us, but then the Holy Spirit applies it. 
And we see here in the Great Commission that not only are we supposed to make disciples and teach them to obey, but right wedged there in between is we're supposed to baptize them. Now, what is baptism? Baptism is the sign that you are dead, that the old man is dead, and there's a new man who's alive, and you are now identified with Christ and with his people. That's what baptism is. See, the gospel is not just what Jesus has done for you, but the gospel is also that you are now a son and daughter of the king, that you are adopted into his family, that the old man has died. Did you know that? That every time you hear about the cross, and when every time you sin, you say, this sin has been paid for, and, when, and I've already been put to death. I've already had the crown of thorns pressed on me. I've already had the nails driven in. And someone may ask, when did that happen to you? Say, it happened to me on Calvary. I died that day. The old man is dead, and now there is a new man who has risen to life. And now I'm called a son and daughter. Listen, that's validation. That's validation. That's a disciple-making process that is rooted in something wonderful that will keep you going when it gets tough, when it gets hard. See, so many of you are trying to, to grow and to change, and the way so many people are trying to change people is just trying to do it through, through self-validation. If you do this, then I'll love you as a child. Or if I do this, maybe I'll be loved. It's interesting, David Letterman said this, that every night, every night, the great David Letterman, every night he said, you get up and you try to prove yourself. You prove that you're the best, the wittiest, the best-smelling version of yourself. He said this, how things go for me every night is how I feel about myself for the next 24 hours. Man, if that's the root of our disciple-making process, we should all just quit now. Because I don't know about you, because I give myself reasons to think I'm a failure about every 24 hours. But the beauty of it is this, is the gospels are primarily about the status that you've received. It's a reward that you've gotten. It's a title it's in a new identity. Other religions tell you it's all about what you do now and what you will receive later. The gospel says, listen, you've received a new identity and you'll receive an inheritance later. That's good news. It gives us absolute assurance. And so the gospel is this, that you are more wicked and you are more flawed than you ever dared believe, but you're more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. That's the cornerstone of a disciple-making process. One last corner, part of the cornerstone of the gospel, and that's the gospel of the kingdom. What does it say? What does it say at the beginning of the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What he's saying is, I'm going to be raised to the right hand of the throne of God. It's interesting. If you were in Britain, you would understand this a little bit better. The person who stands or sits at the right hand of the throne of the king is who? The prime minister. It is the government. They call the person who actually runs things and reigns and rules. The king is there, and that's nice. But this is the person who reigns and rules, and this is what Jesus is saying about himself, that I am going to go to execute the government of my father, to rule and reign for him. In Ephesians 1, he says that when God raised him from the dead, he seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, where? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And what this means is a part of our gospel that we communicate in the disciple-making process is that we are part of a new administration. That we are part of a new kingdom. And there is a new king, and it's his values that are going to come to bear and rule this world. And guess what? His values are a reversal of all the world's values, Right? Because the world would say the way you become a king is through power. Jesus says, I come to lay down my power, to take on weakness and to die on a cross. The gospel of the kingdom is the way up is down. 
The way to real power is to get up power and to serve. The way into God is to go to the margins, to see yourself as small and little, and to repent of your sins. God loves to work with the weak and the marginal and the poor. That's the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God. And we get to be a part of sharing this gospel of this kingdom. Did you know that? This is, part, this is the part that we, I think we forget almost in American evangelicalism more than anything else because we don't understand the kingdom of what Jesus did. In, Matthew, in Isaiah 7, 52, verses 7 and 8, it says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. We like that verse. We stick it on our refrigerators. But what is the good news that we're bringing? Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, what? What do we say to Zion? Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice and together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. What is it that's part of our gospel? That we get to say the king has come and he is coming again. That is good news. And that has got to be part of our disciple-making process, the cornerstone of it. That yes, in a broken world, there is a king who's come to making all things right and all things new. We have a king. A king. And that's important because this gives us hope in a broken world. It also, it also tells us in our disciple-making process that you are not king. You are not king. He is. And so we live, as it says in the Lord's Prayer, for his kingdom, for his will to be done on this earth. This is the gospel method of discipleship. To hit all aspects of a person in the context of community with the beautiful power, the good news of Jesus Christ, such that the good news transforms our minds, transforms our hearts, and transforms our lives. You know what? In fact, we could say this, that knowing Jesus and knowing his gospel changes everything, right? It changes everything. Trusting in the work of Jesus Knowing the love of Jesus and submitting to the kingship of Jesus changes your life. And therefore, guess what? This gospel should be infiltrated and be in every, all these things we've talked about for the last six, seven weeks. Mops, welcome team, open hands, campus outreach, 12 for life, everything that we do as a church. It is great to be involved in social work, but if that's where it ends, then we, listen, who cares? We can all go home, we can all sleep in on Sunday morning, and we can spend more time uh, going to soup kitchens. But we need the gospel, and therefore everything that we do must be infiltrated and filled with the gospel. And so if you're sitting with somebody and you're mentoring a, a kid from 12 for life, you want to communicate to them the gospel. When you're serving in our nursery, and listen, maybe you're just trying to keep a kid from crying, that, but let's have higher goals. If you serve in our nursery, would you pray over my children? Would you, would you pray gospel prayers over the covenant children in this church? As you, welcome, as you welcome people, would you pray as you come to church that the, 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 the hands and feet of Jesus would be seen, that the community of God's people on this Sunday morning would welcome people in, the hurting and the broken, and that they would find a home here, and that they would hear of Jesus, the one who is the lover of their soul. The gospel would infiltrate everything we do. Romans 1.16, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And so it's got to be in everything we do. All right, so that's our mission. I'm just going to give you a promise real briefly to close. The second last, it's really our second point, but it's really a closing point. The promise for our mission is this. It says this, there is one more thing Jesus says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world or the end of the age. It's interesting. 
Where is Jesus? Where is the risen, glorified Jesus? I ask my kids this all the time. Like the catechism question, I often ask them, is can you see Jesus? And they go, no, but Jesus always sees me. And we talk about where is Jesus, and they say God is everywhere, and this is true. God is everywhere, not only in time and, or in space, but he's also everywhere in time. Where is Jesus? It says that Jesus in that verse is at the end of the world. He's left our world and our sphere and our realm and has gone to heaven where there is no time. He's at the end of the world. He knows how things end, and he's guaranteed it. Think of the world. There's a story, and at the end of the world's story, the king is there. And the king is waiting for us at the end of the world's story. You have a story, I have a story, and the world has a story. And what is the world's story? The world's story is this. At the end of all things, Jesus says, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and I will make all things new. You want some more? So the end of the story is already is prophesied in Isaiah 11. It gives us a beautiful description. It says this, verses 4 to 10, but with righteousness... He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will be able to play with the hole of a cobra, and wean child put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth, what? Shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Revelation 21.5, he will wipe every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. And there will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said what? I am making all things new. The promise for the Great Commission, the promise for disciple making, the promise for all these nuts and bolts things that we do as a part of the church is this, is that we have a king who reigns now and forevermore. And his kingdom, his kingdom will never go away. You know, as Christians, it's, it's, it's kind of, we kind of get, we like to be good sports, don't we? And part of being in a good sport is we tell people, listen, being a good sport, if you're a kid, being a good sport, they're like, oh, he's a good sport. It means he lost a lot. Being a good sport means you're a loser. It's I think often we, we like to talk about it. It's the good sportsmanship award. Yeah, you weren't good enough to actually win anything, but you were really sweet about being terrible. But the good news is, as Christians, is, is the, you get the good sports world, is, is we are not, just, that's, not, not the, that's not the economy we're living in. We're not lo- living in that economy. We're living in an economy where Jesus says, you're the victor of the victorious team. You're not just going to get a good sports world at the end of all things. You're going to get the victory. It says this, the king of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and it says his reign shall last forever and ever. The Moravians, when they entered into their great mission quest, Three, four, five hundred years ago said this. Their motto was, our lamb has conquered. Let's follow him. So church, our lamb is conquered. And he is conquering and he will conquer. So let's follow him. Would you be a part of what God is doing in this world? I want you to see something about what we are calling you to be a part of. I want to show you that God is on the move with something bigger than simply King's Chapel. 
I did this four years ago, and I will remind you of it again, to see our context within the greater context of church history and what God has done in bringing about his kingdom on this earth. You see, the kingdom of God started small like a mustard seed, and then went out to a few disciples, and we see in Peter and Cornelius they go out in the early part of Acts, and they begin to save converts. And in Acts 15, we see the Jerusalem church says, yes, we should go out, and we should save Gentiles. We see in AD 42 that Mark, the apostle Mark, goes to Egypt, and the gospel expands. In AD 49, Paul goes to Turkey, and in AD 51, he goes to Greece. Thomas goes to India in AD 51. In AD 54, Paul travels all over the Mediterranean in his third missionary journey. AD 74, the first Austrian Christians are known. In 280, the first rural Christians in Italy, not Christianity had been primarily in the cities and begins to, to move out to the country folk. In 350 AD, 31.7 million Christians are in the Roman Empire. 53% of the empire is now Christian. In 432, Patrick heads to Ireland to share the gospel with the heathens and pagans there. In 596, Gregory the Great sends missionaries to what is now England, and within two years, they baptize 10,000 people, the movement of the gospel. In 1200, we see the Bible is now available in 22 languages. In 1492, Columbus sails the open ocean blue, and for some different purposes, but part of those purposes was this, not just to find gold, but also to evangelize. And what does he stumble upon? North America, and thus begins the evangelization of the Americas. With all of its bumps and its bruises and along the way, and those who took advantage of it for their own gain, still the gospel advanced. We see that advanced not just in America, it advanced in Africa. In 1498, the first Christians in Kenya are reported. In 1554, the first 1,500 Christians are reported in Thailand. In 1753, David Brainerd begins his work in the west of America with American Indians, and the gospel moves westward. I want to hear about Georgia In Georgia in 1733, James Oglethorpe arrived in Savannah to the most mosquito-infested place on planet Earth and began to establish the colony of Georgia. In 1733, a possibly unregenerate John Wesley and his brother Charles arrived in Savannah to minister to the newly formed Savannah Parish and to be ministers to the Native Americans. In 1738, George Whitfield arrived to Savannah to fill the vacancy created when Wesley returned to England. Whitfield ministered all over the place and became a key leader in the Great Awakening, even establishing an orphanage in Savannah. In 1751, a pastor by the name of Jonathan Copp went as a missionary to the heathens in Augusta, Georgia, and in 1804, Reverend Washington McKnight gathered a small group of people to form what has become known as First Presbyterian Church of Augusta, Georgia. In the 1980s, a man named Will Rogers and a group of other folks, in 1985, God led them to begin to establish a church here in Carrollton to have a reformed influence in Carrollton, Georgia, in the West Georgia community, and they named that church Covenant Community Church and began meeting for the first time in September 1985. In 1993, Covenant Community became what is now known as King's Chapel, and now our 31 years of history, we have seen God do amazing things from this small body. Some of you have been here for most of the ride. Most of you have not, and so you need to know where we've come from. And God's work will not stop, and it has not stopped. And we are part of something grand and great. It's called the kingdom of God. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, it says this, that the gates of hell will not prevail against us, but we will move through heaven and hell itself and bring the kingdom of God to bear as we communicate the gospel to a dying and broken world. 
That's the mission, brothers and sisters. Thank you for being a part of it. And if you're not, man, you're missing out. Would you jump on board with us? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a king, that you're a monarch, that you reign supreme and have infinite authority in this world. And therefore, when you say that no one will snatch them from my hands, when you say my kingdom will advance to the ends of the earth, when you say I will carry on my work to completion, that there is no one, there is nothing in this universe that will stop you. And Lord, we thank you that we get to be a part of that work. Gracious God, I pray that we would keep the main thing, the main thing, the main thing at this church. That even in the midst of the nuts and bolts, the kissing of babies, the changing of diapers, the evangelizing on campus, the defeating the poor and the lost with a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, that in the midst of all these details, that Lord, we would not forget the big picture the big picture of disciple-making, the big picture of the vision of the kingdom that is to come, and that through these things you would motivate us and you would empower us and you would equip us by the power of your Holy Spirit to take part of your great work in this world. We thank you, Jesus, for your cross, for your resurrection, for your kingship, and that we are citizens and sons of yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.